Okay, 14 through 30. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day uh, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there, was, that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Uh, I now have the opportunity just to say a couple things. My brother is... He, when we asked him to be a part of the service with Caleb uh, being dedicated, he said, well, would you like for me to preach so that you don't have to? You can kind of enjoy the day. And I thought that sounded like a glorious idea. Um, my brother is, is, is uh, one of my uh, chief spiritual mentors, always has been my, my whole life. The first discipleship experience that I ever had, a discipleship program which profoundly influenced my life. I think, in fact, that program and the ministry I was involved there had more spiritual impact on me than any of my seminary training, and he's the one that that brought me into that. Um, He has always been one who has sort of led in that way. He's taken me on a number of different missions trips, and I'm just really, uh, really proud of him. He's an elder at his church in Grand Junction, and so I'm just excited for him to share what the Lord has on his heart. Everybody hear me? No, not yet. How about now? All right, will you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we praise you uh, for your glorious grace. Thank you for this grace. You've just allowed us to sing about it. Um, And now we'll study your grace in your word. As we open our Bibles, I pray that that you would, through your Holy Spirit, speak to us. We will not understand your word unless you do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
the passage that Kevin just read. And if you do have your Bibles, you, I'd love for you to turn to Luke chapter 4 with us. We're going to be sort of marching through it verse by verse. I'm using the ESV version, so many of you, I think, are using NIV. There may be a few subtle differences in the translation, but you should be able to follow along. And uh, there will be a couple of slides, if you are somebody who's helped by jotting things down, there'll be those coming as well. If you were only reading Luke's Gospel, you might think that the scene that Kevin just read was at the beginning of of Jesus' formal ministry, but in fact, the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, record this incident a little bit later, and so we believe that this uh, occurred about one year into Jesus' three-year ministry. Prior to his, his formal ministry, of course, Jesus was living in Nazareth, uh, working as a carpenter with his father, Joseph. And the beginning of his formal ministry is marked in the previous chapter, in Luke chapter 3, where he journeys to the Jordan River and is baptized by John the Baptist. And then he's led into the desert by the Holy Spirit and he's tested by Satan. And then between verses, that's of course in Luke 4, 1 through 13, right before what we've just read, between verses 13 and 14 are about one year of Jesus' formal ministry. And of course we know from the other Gospels that during this time Jesus uh, was gathering his disciples in Galilee. If you can put the first slide, uh, you're probably not going to be able to see that from back there, but Galilee of course is up north, Jerusalem being down south, and uh, Nazareth is, is in Galilee. You can see it sort of in the center there. Just north of Nazareth was Cana, where Jesus performed his first miracle, where he turned water into wine at the wedding, where they had run out of wine. And uh, we know that Jesus, in, that, in this first year, went to Jerusalem for the Passover, taking his disciples with him. It was at this time that he went through the, the temple, driving out the those who would make it a marketplace. And then on his way back to Galilee through Samaria, he stops at, at Sychar, which is where Jacob's well is, and that's where we hear the, the story about the Samaritan woman uh, at the well, and he meets and speaks with her. And so he's on his way back to Galilee in verse 14 and 15, and the people in Nazareth, the Scripture tells us, welcomed him. In fact, it says they, in the ESV, glorified him. So they already knew of his miracles. Uh, They certainly would have known about the official son in Capernaum, which is just even a little further north than Cana, where Jesus had healed the official son. And we believe there were many other miracles, of course, that aren't specifically recorded. Certainly enough that when Jesus was coming back to Nazareth, people knew something was different. In this time, Nazareth was a very small town, about 500 people, we think, so everybody would have known each other or at least known about each other. And uh, the people in Jerusalem would have been the same people that would have journeyed with Jesus and Mary and Joseph to Jerusalem Uh, for the Passover feast. You can imagine there were people sitting there in the synagogue that Mary and Joseph would have said to, have you seen Jesus? Where is He? And when He was 12 and and was in the temple and His parents couldn't find Him on the way back, Jesus' boyhood friends 
uh, now in their 30s. Many of them would have been married and had children of their own. And uh, if you lived in Nazareth at that time, you might have had a little chair or a table or something that had been made by Jesus or his father, Joseph. We know from verse 16 that it was Jesus' custom to be in the synagogue. So if you'd been living there at that time, you almost certainly would have worshipped right alongside with Jesus on a weekly basis. So this time, Jesus is coming back to Nazareth and things are different. He's famous now. Um, I understand that Merrill Streep is from a small town not far from here, the town of Summit, New Jersey. Anybody know where that is? I understand about 20,000 people there. For those of you who are, who are too old to know who Merrill Streep is, maybe Brad Pitt is a better example. He's from Shawnee, Oklahoma, population 30,000, about the same size of the town that Kevin and I grew up in, and is as flawed as many of these celebrities may be, I'm sure that when Brad Pitt walks into Shawnee, Oklahoma, the people there take a little bit of pride in knowing that Brad is from their town. So it's a big deal for the people of Nazareth to be welcoming the now famous Jesus back to town. No doubt the saying quoted by Nathaniel in John 1.46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Would have been a curse to anyone from Nazareth. But now things would be different. They could claim the miracle worker Jesus as their very own. You can almost imagine the excitement that morning. It's the Sabbath. You know that Jesus is going to be there. And so here you are in the synagogue and no doubt there were record numbers in attendance that day. And the regular service begins. There's singing. There's prayer. And then the attendant hands Jesus the scroll, he stands up and he reads, we pick up in verse 17, and the prophet, or the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to pro- proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20 tells us that he rolled the scroll back up, gave it to the attendant, and sat down. And in, in uh, Jesus' time, when a teacher, a Hebrew teacher, would sit down after the reading, of course, he's standing to give it respect, and then they would sit down, and then that would be the indication that he was about to teach on what he had just read. And in verse 21, we read, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You can bring up the next slide. So three points, if you will, about Jesus' reading from Isaiah. The first one is that Jesus is deliberately claiming in himself the fulfillment of prophecy. He chose the reading. It says he found the place. So he was handed the scroll and he deliberately picks what in our Bibles, and if you want to turn there, you can, uh, is now Isaiah chapter 61. And then he says, Today the Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he's talking about himself. So when you read verses 18 and 19 of Luke 4, which is actually Jesus reading Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, you can read it like this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. He's talking about himself. So Jesus is deliberately claiming in himself the fulfillment of prophecy. The second one, and you've got to hang with me here for a second. This is not immediately apparent. But one day God will come again in vengeance. But for now, God has come to us in grace through Jesus. It's very interesting the passage in Isaiah 61 that he reads actually has another verse and a half, eight more lines before the end of a sentence. And yet, as one commentator put it, Jesus cuts the reading off at the end of a comma. He doesn't even finish the sentence. And if you look in Isaiah 61.2, you see what he doesn't read. He reads, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and then he doesn't read, and the day of vengeance of our God. Why does Jesus do this? Is he trying to make a point about God being a God of love, but not really a God of justice? You can almost hear some of the contemporary heretics of our day saying, see, Jesus, even Jesus leaves out the part about wrath. There's no wrath, there's no hell, there's no judgment. But that's not it at all. In fact, the Bible is crystal clear that Jesus will come again, and when he does, the focus will be on that next part, on vengeance, judgment, rather than on grace. We must understand that Jesus will come again, and after he does, there is a judgment. Paul likes to describe this like a courtroom scene where uh, one day every one of us will have to give an account for our lives. And Scripture is clear that unless Christ is Lord of our life, and thus his atoning work on the cross can be applied as the payment for our sin, that judgment day will be a terrible day indeed. So Jesus cuts the reading off after to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, not because he's dismissing the judgment, but because he is being very specific about which part of Old Testament prophecy he's actually fulfilling now. And because he's proclaiming the message of his ministry and the central theme of this passage the message of grace, the message of the gospel. Now, if you look in verse 18, uh, it's important to understand that when he refers to the poor and the captives, the blind and the oppressed, Jesus is not just speaking of a particular group of disadvantaged or disenfranchised people. What he's describing is actually the spiritual condition of all people as they stand before a righteous God. I mean, you see that in, in Israelites in Jesus' Jesus's day would have read Isaiah 61, and many of them would have looked at that in the context of being occupied by the Roman Empire, many of whom poor and oppressed by the Roman Empire, and they would have thought, well, if Jesus is really the promised Messiah, we expect that he'll restore us economically, politically, and liberate us from these Roman oppressors. Sure, many of them thought that. In fact, many of the Pharisees, the reason they missed him was because that's what they were expecting. But that's not what he did, was it? The kingdom that Jesus was ushering in was not an earthly kingdom in the same sense that the people wanted, but rather a spiritual kingdom. So to the spiritually poor, as Paul describes in Ephesians, he offers the riches of every spiritual blessing in Christ. And to those who are 
captive to to their transgressions, slaves to their own sin, He offers liberty, forgiveness, freedom in Christ. And to those who think they can find their own way to God and those deceived whose eyes the Scripture tells us God is blinded from the truth, He offers to unscale their eyes and give them spiritual insight and understanding about His plan of salvation. We'll talk a little bit more about the specific message of grace that Jesus brought on that day. But one, one final point uh, in this section, we must read the entire Bible through the window of the Gospel. And if you'll allow me to a little bit of a rabbit trail, to me right now, this is the most important thing that God is doing in my life, helping me to understand how His Scripture as a whole describes Him. Um, just a show of hands, how many people have ever tried or, or actually done, read through the entire Bible in a year? Anybody? Good. A few people. Um, a couple of years ago, my senior pastor encouraged our congregation to do this. and It was December, and he was plugging it, getting everybody all pumped up to read the Bible in a year. And January started out, and I was doing pretty well for a while. And then about the end of January... Uh, I got to Leviticus, and yeah, there's some, some chuckles, you know what I'm talking about, it got really hard. Um, I got to chapter 17, where it's talking about the law of the guilt offering, and it says, and all its fat shall be offered, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that's on them, and the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he, I'm a liver surgeon. I don't know what the long lobe of the liver even is. So I read this and I'm like, and then the beginning of February wasn't much better. I got into numbers and I'm reading in chapter 5 about how these unclean people were required to be cast outside the Israelite camp, people who had leprosy or because of a bodily fluid discharge or they'd come in contact with the dead. And I'm reading this and I'm like, What in the world? I mean, how is this relevant to my life? You read passages like these without the context of the gospel, and I guarantee you'll be totally lost, and it'll seem irrelevant to your life. But when you read those Levitical sacrifices, and you read about all the effort that God's people went to to try and appease God's wrath for their sin, knowing that Jesus has come, as the perfect and final sacrifice for your sin, then Leviticus takes on real meaning. And when you read that same passage in Numbers, and you know that in Luke chapter 5, the very chapter after we read this morning, that Jesus is going to reach out His hand and touch a leper and heal him. And then in chapter 8, He's going to get touched by a woman with a discharge of blood. Again, contact that will heal the woman, making her clean. And all this happening as Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house where the man's daughter has just died and Jesus will come into her room and come in contact with her and take her by the hand and raise her from the dead. When you read Numbers knowing that Jesus systematically defied the law, that he came in contact with all these unclean people and didn't get infected or defiled himself, but rather disinfected, healed, and gave new life, to everyone who put their trust in Him, when you read Numbers through the window of the Gospel, it changes everything. 
And so look at what happens when you put the Old Testament in Jesus' hands. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's telling the people of Nazareth that God has brought hope for the people of their little town today, just as He's brought hope for the people of Rivervale today. So from Jesus' reading in Isaiah, we understand that Jesus is deliberately claiming in Himself the fulfillment of prophecy. We understand that one day God will come again in vengeance, but for now God has come to us in grace through Jesus. And we must read the entire Bible through the window of the Gospel. Well, I don't know if you can imagine what it would have been like to be there on that day hearing this message. I imagine it would have been uh, fairly overwhelming, really. You've, you know, you've been studying these scriptures all your life, and then there's this man from your town who's out performing miraculous signs and healings, and it turns out that he was the, the one that, the promised, uh, that Isaiah promised in the, in the prophecy that, that he was talking about all along. Well, what does Jesus mean that he is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor? I think you may already know this. I know Kevin preached through this a a few years ago. um, And we sang about it this morning. Uh, These are the days of Elijah. The year of the Lord's favor was the pinnacle of some wonderfully compassionate laws that God had given to his people. These were laws basically of social justice. We read in Deuteronomy 15 that every seven years, all debts were to be canceled. So I heard someone put it once like this. How would you like every seven years to get a call from Citibank and they say, oh yeah, that $3,000 you owe on your credit card, gone. Um, Wells Fargo calls you, they hold your mortgage and they tell you, gone. You don't owe anything now. Every seven years, all slaves were to be released. So when people couldn't pay a debt, if they couldn't pay it, oftentimes they would offer them their own labor uh, as a payment for their debt, and thus were uh, sort of financial slaves. God didn't want financial enslavement to go on any more than seven years, and thus every seven years, slaves were freed. But we get in Leviticus 25 the most wonderful law of all. After seven cycles of seven years, in the 50th year, the trumpet was to be sounded in the land and a jubilee was to be proclaimed. That's what we were singing about. The land that had been sold in the last 49 years was to be returned to the family of original ownership. You'll recall that when God's people finally got done wandering in the desert and He brought them into the promised land, There's a very prescribed way where God uh, doles out the land to each tribe, to each family. And land, the land was God's, really. I think he was trying to remind them, I'm giving you the land, but it's mine. This is not your permanent home. You're sojourners here. And and so the the nearer you got to the Jubilee, the, the less value a piece of land would have. You could... You could sell it if you needed to or whatever, but 
knowing that on that 50th year, it was all going back to the original family. So it was sort of being rented. And for hardworking American capitalists, these, are, these laws are really hard to wrap our heads around. Right? I mean, can you, can you imagine it? Um, but they were extremely compassionate laws. They placed a check on the growing power of those who had accumulated wealth through land. And once in every lifetime, the poor were given a brand new start. No nation before or since has ever had laws like this. No culture has ever protected the poor like this. But God said, you are my people. I love every single one of you. I really care about the poor among you. And so this is what you are to do. So let me ask you a question. How would you like to live under that law? As you think about it, it doesn't take very long before you realize, well, it depends, right? If you're a borrower, if you're in lots of debt and, and, and having difficulty making ends meet, well, then this is, you're all for this. But if you're a landowner or a banker who's amassed tremendous wealth, this is bad business. So how many times do you think this happened? Never happened. Most scholars agree that this, the year of Jubilee was never proclaimed. And you ask why, but you know why, because the people with the power to honor the law were the people with the money. I mean, look at how much this is going to cost us if we give all this land back, they would have said. Let's just put this off a few more years. So by the time that Isaiah is prophesying, the people had been living in the land for 700 years. There should have been 14 jubilees, but there had been none. The trumpet never sounded. The year of the Lord's favor was never proclaimed. And this is why the Old Testament prophets are so scathing regarding the nation's lack of protection for the poor. God's laws for the protection of the poor were systematically ignored by His very own people. It's not really surprising, though, because these kind of laws could really only operate among a people who loved God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength and who really loved their neighbor as much as they loved themselves. That's never been the case in all of human history. And as we reflect on that, it shows us how God's perfect law reveals how selfish we really are. As you think about the fact you might not want to live under a law like that if you're honest with yourself it's because you want to keep what you have you care more about yourself than you do about your neighbor i know that's true of me so god spoke to isaiah about the one who would come the one who would proclaim good news to the poor who would proclaim liberty to the captives who would restore sight to the blind who would proclaim the year of the lord's favor but who would have the power and the will to actually make it happen. Now Jesus is in the synagogue in Nazareth and he opens the scroll and he reads this promise and then he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What God is saying is that he's going to do for you for all of eternity what you wouldn't even do for each other in this temporary breath of a life. He is going to cancel all your debts. 
He is going to set you free from the slavery that is sin. He's going to give you back the inheritance that Adam lost, the inheritance of perfect, eternal fellowship with God that we've all traded in one way or another for sin. He's going to do it through me, Jesus says. That is the promise of the Gospel, and it is marvelously good news for a people like us who aren't just spiritually poor, but spiritually bankrupt. So while the year of the Lord's favor would have been a huge blessing to the poor in Israel, the year of the Lord's favor through Jesus Christ is for us an eternal blessing of unimaginable proportions. And while honoring the year of the Lord's favor would have been financially costly for the wealthy in Israel if it had ever happened, the year of the Lord's favor for us comes at an incredible cost to God. It cost Him His Son. Jesus, absorbing all our debts into Himself and then dying on the cross, allowing God the Father to pour out His righteous wrath on Him who knew no sin to pay our debts. God canceling debt, God releasing captives, God restoring lost eternal inheritances in Christ. That is the gospel. And look at the Nazarene's initial response. Verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They marveled at the words. They They were amazed. And they were like, this is Joseph's son. These gracious words coming from his mouth. He wasn't telling them what they must do or who they ought to be. What he was preaching was completely different from what they were used to hearing. And it's completely different from what most are hearing in all the workspace religions around the world today, even some of the Christian ones. What he was preaching was grace. Now that's their initial impression, right? But then there's a complete 180. An about face. If you skip to verse 28, it says, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill in which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. They were filled with wrath. They clearly intended to kill him. So how in the world do they go from gracious words to filled with wrath? Well, what's crazy is that the grace that they so marveled at is also what ultimately made them so angry. You see, it's like this. Colin Smith, an e-free preacher in the Chicago area, put it like this. He said, while grace is something given freely to us by God, grace is also something that God has no obligation to give us at all. Go back to verse 23. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. They felt they had a special claim on Jesus. He, that he had some sort of obligation to them. Do here in your hometown what you did in Capernaum. But Jesus does not do miracles on demand, does he? You can't demand grace. You can't be owed it. 
Grace is given freely. It can't be earned or deserved. So the problem for the people in Nazareth is that they're saying to Jesus, you owe it to us. We're your town. And the tragedy is that the same people who approached Jesus as though He owed them something are the same people who found that no great mighty works were done in their town. I'm not aware of a single miracle that was recorded in the town of Nazareth. And of course, we do the same thing today. It's all about us, and we're telling God who He must be. We're making God up in our own minds, telling Him what He has to do. One minute we're casually keeping Him out of our lives, and the next minute we're shaking our finger at Him because He doesn't give us what we want, what we think we deserve. You see, we're a people who feel very entitled. I'm a pretty good person, we say. Say things like, well, I, I go to church. I give money to God. I mean, I, I'm not perfect, but I, I think I deserve to go to heaven. I deserve to be healthy. I deserve to be recognized for all the good things I do. I deserve to have my kids grow up and be healthy and respectable. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. You see what I mean? We all do it in subtle ways. So because grace means that God has no obligations and Jesus is bringing the message of grace to a town that thinks He's obliged to them, it made them very angry. But there's another side of grace too. Look at the beginning of verse verse 28 again. It says, "When, When they heard these things... All in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Well, what were these things? Jesus had just reminded them of two stories from the Old Testament that they would have known well. And this is, again, where I love how Jesus just pulls the whole of Scripture together. In verses 25 and 26, which is calling back, hearkening back to 1 Kings chapter 17, But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. You understand that Sidon is not even part of Israel. It was the heartland of idolatry. It was the hometown of Jezebel, the notoriously wicked queen, slaughtered thousands of innocent. And when famine comes, God's blessing of a bottomless pot of flour and a bottomless pot of oil comes to a home in Sidon. And Jesus points out, look, it's not like there weren't widows among God's chosen people that I could have blessed, but I chose to bless a woman from Sidon. And then he reads in our passage, verse 27, which comes from 2 Kings 5, And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Naaman, as you probably recall, I mean, in many ways he was the total opposite of this widow in Sidon. He was wealthy. He was an accomplished, decorated the commander of the Syrian army, but he knew he was in trouble when he got leprosy and he meets the prophet Elisha and eventually he humbles himself and God heals him. And Jesus says there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. 
but only Naaman, the Syrian, was cleansed. Think of it. Naaman was the captain of the armies of the enemies of God's people. And yet, God's blessing comes to him. And this is kind of lost on us because we don't understand all that. But it would be similar to God having chosen to bless Osama bin Laden. It would be that crazy, in a way, to, to God's people at the time. If ever there was a story in the Old Testament that shows that God's grace has no restrictions, it's this. So grace means that God has no obligations, and it also means grace has no restrictions. God has no restrictions. God can bring his blessing wherever, whenever, and to whomever he chooses. Grace means that God is obliged to save no one, and grace means that God is free to save anyone. Do you see it? Our sovereign God rules from heaven above. He's created all. He has dominion over all. And though He is perfectly good, He can do whatever He wants. In my own life, the more I recognize God's sovereignty, the more comfort I take in knowing that He's my God. It is possible to grow up in a church like this or the church that I attend and attend most Sundays and serve and tithe maybe with a sense of obligation or duty. Oftentimes we try and strive after our own righteousness instead of trusting in Christ. And if we're trusting in our own righteousness, it leaves us hanging. On the flip side, you can live the most despicable life imaginable, spending your days as a drunk, a liar, adulterer, and then just all of a sudden God just chooses to pluck you out of that and transform you, giving you a new life. And so when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. You see, grace will either make you angry or it will lead you to worship. If you're not in Christ, that is, you're striving after your own righteousness or counting on experiences you've had with God from the past or counting on the good things you do in life to somehow gain you favor in the eyes of God, be warned, God is not obligated to save you. In fact, He will not save you unless you trust in His Son, Jesus, and His atoning work on the cross But if you are saved, does it not amaze you that you are in Christ? When so many people you know all around you think so little of Him, it's not even a thought in their mind. I mean, why are you so different? Are you a better person? You made better choices? Do you not stand before God with a sense of wonder and amazement at His grace in your life that somehow in compassion and mercy He's laid hold of your life in Christ, got a hold of you, He's turned you around, and here you are in Christ. Let God's grace 
lead you not to anger. Let God's grace lead you to worship Him. Let's pray. Almighty Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Holy Word. Please honor Your promise that Your Word would not return void. Thank You for Your sovereign grace. We trust in You. We we humbly ask that You would reveal to each of us who You really are so that we can, as living sacrifices, worship You in spirit and in truth. In the name of the only One who has the words of eternal life, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.